Well, I'm delighted to have back Emina Milanic, who has been on Church and Culture before, but not for a while, sorry to say, been too long. She writes about culture, film, and books. We're going to talk about films today and culture as well. Her work has been published in American Greatness, Claremont Review of Books, Los Angeles Review of Books, Modern Age, and The New Criterion, among many others. She's currently working on two books, a biography of Edward G. Robinson and a book on Ronald Reagan's Hollywood years. Now, Emina, why did you pick Edward G. Robinson? Well, you know, I've always been fascinated by by that time period, and um, and also the uh, uh, I was in uh, kind of conversation with the uh, the publishers, and uh, they they've wanted me to write uh, something for them, and they said, please, what you what are you really interested in? So it was between Edward G. Robinson and Joseph Cotton. And uh, although I would still love to write a book on Joseph Cotton as well, but we picked Edward G. Robinson first. So, Well, that's an ideal kind of publisher to have. What do you want to write? <laughs> I love it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, you know, I follow you on Facebook, and uh, you've read a few of my books, too, and reviewed them. I'm grateful for that. Uh, we're going to talk about something that interests us both. And I think it'll be apparent to our listeners why we think it's important to talk about. We're going to be talking about some of the great films of all time that were produced during the years of the Weimar Republic. Now, you may not recall that the Weimar Republic is what Germany became after the resignation of its emperor, Kaiser Wilhelm II, and was set up in 1918. It was the first ever de- democratic government for what is known as Germany. And it lasted until Hitler was created chancellor in 1933. So it didn't live for long, but it had an incredible flourishing in the arts and culture, during, especially during the mid to late 20s. Um, you mean uh, why are why are you fascinated with this period the same way I am? Well, you know, I really first of all I should say I love silent cinema, and uh, I think that I can't remember now which was the first silent uh, movie I saw, but certainly when I was a child, but certainly recently I would say when I started to get back into it, uh, maybe seven years ago um, or so, I watched Pandora's Box. Um, Pop's uh, film 1929 with Louise Brooks and uh, and I just couldn't believe you know once you mature a little bit as a human being you you go back and revisit these things and, and you are at least I was just absolutely astounded by the depth of of this film and then I started to really get more and more into the silent movies and I I realized. Um, as much as perhaps technically uh, they are not as advanced, um, the the operatic and the, the quality of them, the notion of the comedic, of course, and the, and of the tragic, is um, is so incredibly universal. And I think it's <laughs> to say that it stands the test of time is really kind of a silly statement, right? Because right. obviously it does. But I think it really gets into the depth of of the soul of who we are, I think more than more than the films that came after. I mean, I shouldn't say that, right? There's so well, many. Well, I, I, I'm going to just say that I agree with you that we have to remember, though, that and some you know cultural and social turbulence and trauma often elicits a great flourishing in the arts. And so here you have a country that was completely defeated in World War One, which ended in 1918, and in which hundreds of thousands of soldiers went back to Germany unemployed. The Treaty of Versailles uh, burdened Germany with a huge amount, something like $200 billion in uh, uh payments to the Allies for destruction and loss of life and so forth. And so you have this post-traumatic syndrome which pervades Germany and especially 
the city of Berlin. But what's surprising is that Berlin came to life like it never had been before, and it became the great city of lights and a great center for uh, painting, for sculpture, for uh, fiction, for all kinds of the arts. And so we see movies like Pandora's Box. We see the early 1920 Nosferatu, the first great silent Dracula film. Movies like M, that's the letter M, about a murderer from uh, Fritz Lang. And Metropolis, also by Fritz Lang, that came a little long a little later, which is sort of the first great science fiction film. So these are movies that some of the listeners may have seen or have come across in one way or the other. But I would like to begin, uh, if you don't mind, Emina, with Metropolis. Yeah, absolutely. It, it seems to raise all kinds of issues that are pertinent to the other films, but also to what was going on in Weimar, Germany during the mid to late 20s. Uh, why has why does Metropolis, so in fact, it sort of stands out as the film of the Weimar Republic, uh, even though I don't think it's as good as Pandora's Box or M. That's, that's just my opinion. Hmm. Uh, but what is it that makes it stand out so much? You know, for me, I again when I first saw it, uh, probably I don't know four years ago. It wasn't that long ago. Um, you know, I was in I was in a complete silence, actually, complete awe after I after I watched it. And I think for me, it was really because it it um, it shows different facets, obviously, of what it means to be a human being, and the fact that it showed this. Um, tension between the individual, between the community, right? The creation of the community. What is a community, right? Is it a, do we live in collectivism? Uh, all of these different political implications uh, that came into it as well. So I think the story um, in it, um, who is moved by it, meaning like which characters are moved by it, which characters, etc. I think for me that was... Um, um, that's what draws me back into it. And I think, of course, the, this idea of the machines, um, which was obviously on their minds as well, and the, the, um, the parallels are obvious uh, to what's going on today. Um, although I don't like to, you know, necessarily um, uh, reduce films to it's so relevant for today, you know, kind of a statement. No, exactly. But, I mean... Any work of art of any worth is going to have an evergreen quality, meaning uh, it provides us insight into human life and nature. Right. So basically the setup is this. Uh, we're in a very modern city with skyscrapers, elevated freeways, uh, floating trains, and this is what makes it so important to the tradition of science fiction that you have the first imagining of a very futuristic setting. But the setting is uh, betrays a two levels of existence, one for the wealthy and one for workers who are work underground almost as slaves, virtually as slaves. And you have... The head of the city, uh, Jo Friedersen, who comes to a, a big argument with his son, Freder, and Freder discovers how the workers down below are being treated. And he witnesses how his own father uh, preemptorily fires his right-hand man for a single mistake. And so he... He has followed the beautiful Maria, uh, played by uh, Bridget Helm, who, in her very first movie, by the way, Bridget Helm, and follows her into the underworld, sees the children, sees their working conditions, and he decides to be part of a revolt 
that is starting once that of the workers some of the workers want to overthrow both the machine and the wealthy is that a good setup for where we want to go yes that's a perfect setup you did it really well i always stumble when i try to retell the plots of the movies but that's great um yeah, so no, why, I, why does, in 1927, you did have, you, the, the industrial age was passed, the age of the machine was exemplified in World War I, the slaughter due to the uh, new armaments of the machine gun and, and, mo- and uh, mortars and artillery that shot five miles and so forth. So this machine age and the enslavement of the worker, that sounds very Marxist to me, Amina. Yeah, no, absolutely. There's always that tension in the film. I think um, because Maria represents this savior, right, for the people that are um, uh, down below. I mean, let's face it, first of all, they are being treated terribly, right? Uh, right. the, The idea of living that kind of life day in and day out, without any hope, without any light, literally, um, is no life at all. And what I found also interesting about the film is that we really don't know what this, this machine, these machines are doing. What are they really making? There really is no production, right, other than what? Running the metropolis, but running it towards what? And I think um, that's, for me, that's always the question that remains there. Um, it seems as if their only function is to enslave the masses. Right, right, exactly. So, you know, and unfortunately, I always say that, that you know, Marxists took uh, uh, this reality that there are people who are uh, subjugated and then taking it, obviously, to the level of totalitarianism, which uh, I never, never should have gone there. Um, but I think there is this kind of, in a way, dream which becomes a nightmare in metropolis of uh, utopia, but that's ultimately a dystopia. But isn't perhaps every utopia on the verge of dystopia, because no such thing exists? Well, the utopian dream has turned into just the creation of another oligarchy. Right, uh, exactly. In place of the one that was overthrown. Right. But you have this subplot of a friend of the boss, Yo, Friedersen, who was in love with Yo Friederson's wife, who chose Yo over him, and his his character name is Rotvang, and he has created an altar to the late wife of Yo named Hell, and he becomes uh, determined at Yo's suggestion to place the face of Maria the beautiful face of Maria, on the uh, robotic woman that he has created to represent hell, H-E-L, which he does do, which ends up in the creation of two Marias, one, an evil Maria, who goes around trying to stir up the revolt, which by this time, Frederick has realized is getting out of hand and is going to bring everybody to, you know, going to kill everybody in the city. And also to uh, really crush anything that is good that exists in the city, regardless of the fact that it's so bifurcated between the rich and the poor. Right. right. There's, and there's no stopping it, right? And, and uh, you know, like the son, when he tells him at the beginning... Um, how long do you think the masses will stay quiet? Um, but of course, the masses are—they don't have much. Um, they don't possess much individuality um, or any personhood as well. Now, whether that is because they have been subjugated and now they have kind of uh, uh, acquiesced to the state of the, to the human condition that they find themselves in, or uh, that they have. Um, given away their dignity willingly you know I'm, I'm not sure but I think at some point when there's more chaos as, as the film develops um, the um, the masses are, are going insane right and they forget their children they leave their, their children behind that's the big flood part happens, of the right? influence of the evil Maria but 
Right. Now, I was reading that uh, this was the most expensive movie ever made in Europe up to this time. Yes. And he had over 40,000 extras, primarily because most of Berlin was unemployed at the right. time. And for the children's scene, was able to scoop up a 1,000 children off the streets to come in because he gave them a really good lunch meal, including ice cream. And he ended up with almost 5,000 kids when the word got out that he was serving a meal. Uh, but in the film, all of these workers, not the children, but the workers, look identical. They walk in rhythm. They wear the same clothes. They have the same haircut. And so they look like they themselves have made themselves or allowed themselves to be made into robots. Right. Who, who is the machine here, right? The, the man or the machine? How, how, have you, how have you have made yourself into a machine? Right, that's the question. But I, but I always find that the children are really the, the central, central uh, uh, characters, in a way, uh, of Metropolis. Because well, they wake up. The fact that they, right. they are abandoned wakes up the workers to what they've done. Right, exactly. And, and, and at the beginning, too, when... when um, um, the son sees when Maria comes up up to the you know by the elevator with the children. He's over there frolicking, right? Which woman is going to entertain him today? Is he going to play tennis or whatever it was? I, I forget. You know, he's having you know life pleasure, and then these children, these poor children, come in, and I think that it's really the face of the child, right? That ultimately um, absolutely wakes him up, and and that's to me, you know, that's the ethical call, right? That's to move away from from the pleasure into into morality. To say, wait a second, there's a moral obligation here, and I think he obviously tries to go about that, but in the end, they're trying to create their own utopian society. And I think that Fritz Lang did say, you know, the whole um, what is it, the mediator between the brain and the hand is heart, right? That's what they kept repeating in the film. But I'm not sure that it has much meaning, right? Because at the end, um, who is, what, what will happen, right? The worker is, the son is now mediating the, you know, uh, the relationship between the worker and his father. No, it's just an emotional, emotional reconciliation. Right, right. Nothing else. If, if Metropolis is to continue, then it will, um, it will continue in, it, in the same form, right? It won't be able right. to actually sustain itself. The, the happiness problem has not been solved. Right, exactly, exactly. Well, let's, let's, um, let's contrast this movie with the great movie by F.W. Murnau, M., starring Peter Lorre. Tell our listeners a little about why this film is so, I think, so intriguing and be a very good place for someone who doesn't know silent film to start. Um. Yes, I, you know, I was really terrified of watching that movie because it deals with Peter Lorre plays a serial killer, but not just any serial killer, but the one who murders children. And when I found out about the movie, it must have been perhaps just a few years after I gave birth to my son. And, you know, I had, I mean, this was a total visceral reaction to me. I could not possibly watch anything that dealt with that, even though the film... Uh, Lang does not show at any point any um, murder or any, you know, everything is a suggestion, which makes it even worse, I think, <laughs> even scarier. Um, but um, it's, it's, a, it's an interesting, it really is an interesting film, I think, uh, to think about the sort of the invisible man in a way, you know, this, this, this banal man uh, uh, that Peter Lorre plays who ends up being the the absolute monster. And, uh, and of course, there's the interplay between the bureaucracy, right? Because at some point, the underworld helps the, the police. Um, yeah, what, what, I, what I find interesting is that the search for him becomes a competition, as it were, between the police and the underworld, who right. is upset because this murderer is giving the underworld a bad name, so to speak. I mean, child murder. Nobody, you know, can conscience that. But you, but what you don't have is a is a group of sort of good people, good guys, good women leading the charge. It's the 
it's the rather corrupt and befuddled police against the corrupt and really non-befuddled underworld. Right, right, exactly. Like this, this idea of powerlessness, right, and, and perhaps which is what reflected uh, the, the German, at that point, German condition as well. Um, so it's, and again, to go back to perhaps M um, uh, could signify in a way Arendt's um, statement of finality of evil, um, meaning given the fact that this man was, the fact that Peter Lorre is the one who plays this incredible monster, right? He's just sort of a, a short man, ugly, you know, et cetera. All, all the, no, everything. short and ugly, yeah, fat, the yeah, whole thing. Yeah, I just... And uh, he is... Now, he is tracked down by an elaborate manhunt put on by the underworld boss, who, uh, again, is finding that this murder of children is causing his crowd of burglars and thieves and pickpockets and these kinds of things to be pounced on by police more readily because of this search for this child murderer. And so they they corner Peter Lorre and tell our listeners how they bring him to trial. Oh my goodness, the trial, that's right. It is so, it, it's it's, is it a really a trial, right? Obviously, it's not a real one. But suddenly, the the um, these forces, which are not supposed to ever come together, come together in order to judge this man. And uh, and it's not a real court. So how do you how do you justify that? Right, the fact it's got that, a kind of Oliver Twist thing going almost. Right, right. It's uh, it every. It's almost as if the order doesn't exist. Right in the. In the city, and I guess we go back to the city. What is the what is the meaning of um, of human of people's relation to this to this place that they're living in? Um, whether it's affecting them, whether it's a, you know a place of of darkness, whether they should go out into the country, you know, all of those questions, right, that are there. And and of course, the most remarkable thing about that scene is you kind of expect them to find him guilty and hang him. But he actually creates sympathy in this among this group of thieves and robbers and ne'er do well by talking about how he's psychologically afflicted with the compulsion to kill kids, and he and and Laurie's acting ability there, he actually elicited sympathy from me watching him. Right. That's what that the one thing that's such a surprise and powerful moment of the film. Right. No, and, and then you... <laughs> yeah, I mean, Lang is a very powerful director, right? And I think, obviously, Laurie has great talent. Um, how can... There's that introduction, right, of, uh, of the psychological into the, um, into the Lang's work. But I think that becomes apparent even more for Lang once he leaves uh, Germany for United States. And, you know, you can see it in, in most of his noir, um, noir films and uh, the... That sort of same kind of theme, you know, continues in his films later. Briefly tell our our listeners what you mean when you say film noir. Film noir. How do I explain that? Well, film noir examples are, uh, let's see, Double Indemnity, right? Humphrey Bogart also was in uh, in so many. We learned the call. Um, how would you describe it? You could probably do a better job. Well, noir means dark. Right. So film noir is black and white, um, usually. Most of the time, and it's usually about a crime, right? Crime that has been committed, going to be committed, or some sort of corruption or act of betrayal. That's why double indemnity is such a, the perhaps the greatest example of film noir. Would you agree? Yes, absolutely, absolutely. You got to have a femme fatale, right? Barbara Stanwyck in this case, you know. Um, Somebody and the and is, the seemingly innocent but very uninnocent Fred McMurray as the insurance right interest. right exactly exactly <laughs> eliciting the compassion right but I right. do see that in M actually and I see um, uh, because it's a kind of a procedural drama as well as much as this this crime is awful 
um, on, on a psychological level, I think emotional level. I think M is also a kind of a crime drama, something that you really generally don't see. Um, and I would, I would add that it illustrates the power of the mob. Mm-hmm. And that's what something we saw in Metropolis. So one thing we see in both of these films from Weimar Germany is this sense of the masses and the potential of their revolutionary power, of their penchant for destruction. Right. And there's no civilization in this civilization, right? There's no civilized behavior. There's this kind of feeling that there's always something bubbling inside, um, something inhuman, um, uh, something that may not be real, but that maybe these are the unconscious desires. I mean, it, you can get very Freudian about it, of course. But You can also um, just get social psychology and talk about the growing power of the Nazis during this period. Right, right. The and, inhuman embodied. Right, and a lot of these films do lend themselves, I think, to that interpretation for obvious reasons. Of course, but um, we're not declaring a kind of outright cause and effect or sort of chain of explanation. We're just saying there are insights here and there. I'm talking with the main Melonic. We're talking about the films of Weimar Germany between 1919 and 1933. We'll be back after a brief message. back with Amina Milanic, who writes about culture, film, and books. We've been discussing film during the period of the Weimar Republic, remarkable flowering of the arts, which included not only film, but visual arts and the novel and poetry and even music, even figures like Bertolt Brecht. And so we're going to continue the discussion by sort of going back to the beginning of this group of remarkable films. I'm going to talk about The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari from 1920. And you might have seen images of this if you've ever seen a man dressed in sort of black and white tights who's kind of trying to find his way through a maze of, of cubicles and uh, multicolored fabrications and totally lost. What's the importance of this film, Emina, in terms of the history of the film that will, films that will follow? Well, I think that certainly technically it seems to me that, that many films were inspired um, uh, by, the, by uh, Caligari. Um, and also I, I do think it is a sort of almost the first film noir in a way because it, it has a component of, uh, has certain components of it obviously, not not everything. Um, in terms of history, of course, you know, we were going back to those interpretations uh, that relate to um, the rise of National Socialism. We have here this Dr. Caligari, this figure that is, um, that certain people are falling under the spell uh, of. And uh, I think the film, a lot of the times when it comes to interpretations, raises the question of uh, whether masses can fall under a spell of some kind of authority. Um, but I think it's, again, I, I, I try not to uh, read, you know, incredible amounts too much too much into that. I think there, there should be some sort of delineation between the aesthetical and the ethical. We're able to, um, to a certain extent, where you're able to only, you know, um, comment on the film aesthetically as well. But I think it's uh, it's a unique film because actually I'm not sure whether anything in it was repeated after that. Certainly the sets the, uh, of, of the film, it's a great example of German expressionism. But I yeah, think and that's, that's the thing that probably most people have glanced at as they right. just looked at issues of world film and so forth. And by the way, you know, the issue of our not trying to aim this all at Hitler is you don't have to go 
forward, you go backwards to Napoleon and many other world historical figures who, whose char- charisma and power have ensnared an entire people. So, I mean, Hitler wasn't the first on the scene with that. Right, exactly. It just happens to be obviously happening in Germany, so that's the, that's the connection here. Something was bubbling up in the society, obviously, without a doubt. But um, but I find the, the uh, I find the set and the uh, and the, the facial expressions, and certainly on on what Cesare, right, the, the the man who is sleepwalking, who is committing these crimes uh, on behalf of Caligari. Not on behalf, he's under his spell, right? So um, I find a film to be quite frightening, actually, aesthetically. It is. Um, you're, it's a you're nightmare. Really are taken it, it, it's a visual nightmare. It really is. I mean, it's it's you do it's a uh, something you know you maybe read in Kafka or maybe um, I mean many filmmakers were inspired by it much later. But I I'm not sure whether there's anything that sort of similar or repeatable in other silent films to such an extent, to such a frightening extent, I think, um, where these sharp lines kind of becoming undulating lines, everything is skewed, right? Everything is distorted. It really is like a, a very bad dream. The uh, the reason probably it, it hasn't been repeated to the extent it has is because uh there's not a lot, once you set up the, the visual style that way, and once you set up the characters the way you did, there's not much, there's not much, many directions you can go. You know, it's going to have to be psychological, it's going to have to be in, interior, it's going to have to be the fate of one person, uh, there's not a lot you can do with it. I mean, I, the the expressionist style can be used for many things, but in this particular case, it kind of creates a, a sort of an insular world, as it were. It does, absolutely, and I think that's really what it is, right? That encapsulates this very very small world with with um, uh, uh, seemingly Id- idyllic, right? That's that's the whole. That's the but whole. well worth seeing. Right. And now, let's go to my favorite movie of this, not just this group, but one of my favorite movies of all time, and that is Pandora's Box, uh, directed by G.W. Pabst, I believe from 1931. Nin- and it's 1929. Oh, 1929, and it is not entirely silent. Uh, well, it is silent from the point of view that the, all the dialogue is carried on uh, what are called intertitles, that is, little panels of words that pop up. Uh, and the, uh, the story here is so powerful and so memorable that I remember, you mean the first time I watched it, I went and read every book there was about the main actress, Louise Brooks, who played Lulu. I... I devoured everything about her because I found her just so stunning uh, and so mysterious at the same time. Yes, I did the same exact thing. I couldn't take my eyes off of her. I, 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 I thought there was something really almost mystical about that woman. It was just a, a very interesting combination of innocence and, and, and the erotic that you, you just couldn't kind of couldn't quite believe that that combination can exist, I guess. Is it an innocence or is it just a total lack of conscience? Conscience, you said? Yes. That's interesting. I never thought of it that way. I always thought, I always found um, uh, Lulu, right, in, the, in Pandora's box, perhaps Louise Brooks as well, I'm not sure, but uh, I always found her to be um, in a way, naive. Uh, maybe I'm too optimistic about that reading. I don't know. <laughs> well, let's like let's tell our let's tell our listeners where the movie starts. The movie starts in, with a scene between Lulu, who is a a woman living off of the money of her boyfriend, who's um, her 
boyfriend who is a newspaper editor, and she's living in a very posh apartment, has very posh clothes, and he's struggling with the fact that he needs to get married for the sake of his reputation and his career, and that he wants to break up with her. And what we see then for the rest of the movie is the struggle between his desire, physical desire for her, and her basic ability to seduce anybody who comes in the room, male or female. Is that fair? Right. I think so. I think you're right. Yes, you're probably... I'll probably have to agree with you by the end of our conversation about her. <laughs> well, Louise Brooks was a free spirit, to say the least. She was, absolutely, absolutely. I mean, you can see it in the other films, right? Um, um, uh, what's the other one? Um, Diary of a Lost Girl, right? That's another part. Yeah, well, she was, from, she was from a small town in Kansas. Yes. And she got her mother to let her aunt take her to New York City at the age of 16. Right. And she never came back. And I think she ended up settling somewhere around Rochester or something like that. Yeah, she ended up living almost on welfare for many, yeah. many years until she was discovered by a, a film historian, Robert Card, who brought out a book of interviews with her and also her own book of critical writings about films, which were quite brilliant and still worth reading. So she, she was a very lot. smart woman. Yeah. But she was, you know, again... Not of her time when it came to sexuality and eroticism. No, no, not at all. I mean, I mean, he, she also, you know, agree or disagree, whatever, you know, with uh, with her stance. But I think that she, in a way, it was a, an, an authentic life for her, whatever, whatever that means. And I think sometimes I have trouble differentiating between Lulu and Louise Brooks. Uh, well, I think sure I, I don't think you should try to solve that problem. Probably not. <laughs> I think it's. And let me, but you know, there is this depiction of male desire, and it's desire not only of the newspaper editor, but also his son, Alwa, who really loves her as well, wants to take her away. Uh, that he, in spite of the fact that he's headed toward humiliation and disgrace, loss of career, wealth, everything. He cannot let go of her. Not at all. Not, I mean, he's destitute at the end there. They're both destitute, really. Um, well, she's dead. Yes, of course. She ends up dead. Because um, we should we should mention at the end of the movie, after all of her ups and downs and her down downward spiral into utter poverty, she decides on Christmas Eve to take pity on a poor man walking the streets who has no money, take her home to her apartment. He turns out to be Jack the Ripper. Right. Who has, who who drops his knife outside her apartment because he likes her and doesn't want to hurt her. But then as they embrace, again, not sexually, just kind of affectionate embrace, he spies a knife lying on the table, and that elicits in him kind of like Peter Laurie, a kind of Peter Laurie moment of he just couldn't help himself. Yeah, there was there was nothing to stop him in a way, right? And uh, that was her destiny, perhaps from the beginning. And I, I um, but I think the the, the film is is a, really a great example of destruction and the, and the potential destruction through the erotic, through eros, that um, um, great sort of tension between the. Um, Eros and Sonatos, right? Eros and Death. So, um, and I think she embodied that. Louise Brooks really did embody do you, it. Do you think that this is a fair portrayal of some women? Uh, perhaps. I'm not sure. I don't know any women like that. <laughs> but uh, um, I'm a little older and more experienced than you are. <laughs> but maybe, yes. I mean, I, I always I struggle with, with uh, you know, in understanding uh, Lulu, Louise Brooks, you know the character in the film, because on some level I think that you could say that she just loves too much. But then there is that scene when she is with, um, you know, uh, what is his name, the the, the, the man, the, the newspaper man, right, newspaper right. editor, um, when she's with him, and 
he he is caught in an embrace by his fiance, right? If I remember correctly. Yeah, they're in the they're at the rear of a theater and backstage right. in a theater. Right. And he is about to get married to this respectable woman. Right. And he ends up going into a room with Lulu, and uh, he is. They start embracing and sort of getting it on. Again, nothing ever explicit in this movie. When she looks, and the look on Lulu's face, is that what you were about to say? Yes, absolutely, that look. There is very definite manipulation there, I would say, because she she knew exactly what she was doing. So perhaps that blows my theory completely uh, away. The look on her face was utterly evil. Yes, it was a total glee, wasn't it, that she accomplished this. She was. She just was laughing at the poor woman and exulting in her own power. Right. Yeah. And I mean, the look. I mean, I'll I'll never be able to get that out of my head. No, it it, it really truly is very powerful. But I think that's a very very telling telling moment. I think in the film of who she is. Um. And and the fragility, I guess, of male desire because they keep going, keep, they kept being seduced by her, not being able to say no in a way. By the way, the the editor's name is Ludwig Schon. Schon, that's right. I forgot. His, his son is Alva. Alva Schon, and she is Lulu. And uh, so, what I what I wonder in watching this film it makes me think: how many men? Have been have been led toward destruction in this way, you know. And is this something that is just a permanent dynamic of human nature in male female relationships? That that extreme beauty and extreme charm. I mean, she she is blessed with a a light. She seems to have an inter- interior light that comes out, and when she smiles, you just want to say, okay, I give up. <laughs> right. I give up. I can't I can't resist a smile like that. Right. I mean, is, that is that fair? I think, it's, excuse me, I think probably, I think perhaps for women, I mean, she does seduce a woman too, right? She seduces a countess. Yeah, lesbian, first lesbian character in film. Yes, uh, and uh, that's that's also a very obviously a, a radical thing to put in a film. But but I think for women, perhaps uh, humor would be would be the, the something that would be irresistible, right? If we're talking about the opposite, um, meaning you know. Uh, if a, is there a male Lulu? I don't know. <laughs> Are there any movies that have male Lulus? That's a great question. I mean, I'm I'm just there must be there must be male again. the The issue here is not so is not just male female relations. It's the power of beauty and grace, because in this film, Lulu is a dancer, right? Who who runs around the stage in tight fitting. Uh, Revealing costumes, but is as natural as a the young deer prancing across the street. Just absolutely no self consciousness at all. Right. And yes, and maybe there's that element too, right? That she actually does not even possess the awareness of some of that stuff. But again, I'm, I maybe I seem to be absolving her a little too much. Uh, <laughs> you better I'm, not. <laughs> I mean, there, but but on your side, there is that last scene with Jack the Ripper when he says, she starts to guide him up to her room, and he says, I have no money, and she says, that's okay, I like you. Right. And so she's just being nice to him right. on Christmas Eve. Right. Uh, so there's something there that is human. Right, of course, yes. Yes, and I, and I think, and there are nuances, I think, of, of Louise Brooks' smile throughout the you know, in the film where you have that scene where she really is obviously manipulative, right? But then there, the, the nuances of her smile, they grow kind of through different stages, and 
Sometimes her smile is simply sweet. Sometimes it's sad. So even you know, and I think she has this wonderful ability to do that. I don't think she had to do too much in a way, actually. Of acting. Of acting. Yes, I think, and I don't mean that as a negative. You know, as a sort of a criticism of her. I simply mean that there was something interior in her that that you know came out, which perhaps simply couldn't be repeated. Uh, after the silent era ended, because she really, and her career ended with silence. I I think a good example of what you're talking about in terms of the modalities of her smile, we talk about the trial. Mm -hmm. There is a scene uh, following the fact that she, in a struggle with uh, her boyfriend Ludwig, accidentally shoots him because he puts a gun to her and tries to get her to pull the trigger to kill herself. But in the struggle, he, she shoots him and kills him. So she goes to trial. Tell the listeners what she's wearing at the trial. She's wearing a, um, if I remember, a kind of a silk dress with a veil. Right? Black. Black, right? And um, when she lifts that veil, my goodness, what a moment <laughs> in, in the cinema. Oh, my goodness. And I'm telling you, when I first saw it, I'm, I'm just staring at the TV, you know, I'm, I'm watching it, and then I just paused the TV. I had to kind of catch my breath. <laughs> I, I, it's, there's something about it. I can't even describe it to you, right? It's the power of, 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 the, of the movies. It's, there was, there was just a kind of almost like suspension of time, you know, when, right. when she did that. That's right. Yeah. And it's one of those moments in your mind that, You'll never really forget it. if you decide to think about it. You can see it perfectly. Yes. And yes. but she ends up. You can see her in the process of seducing some of the judges. And but what she does, in fact, is seduce the entire crowd. Because the crowd gets up and carries her to freedom, out of the courtroom. Right. She's just swept away by again the masses. Which is, again, that seems to be one thing that's common to the movies we've talked about, is the power, uh, both destructive and beneficial, of, of the, the German people, the masses, when, they're, when they are moved in a, in a direction. And so, Pandora's Box, 1929 German film directed by Georg Wilhelm Pabst, starring Louise Brooks, is a film that I think anyone interested in film history or film classics ought to watch. There's absolutely no explicit sex. There's no nudity beyond the suggestion under clothing of nudity. Uh, there's not, there's just the, the, it's the most, uh, immediate portrayal and felt portrayal of male desire and female seductiveness that I've ever seen in a movie. I really completely agree with you. I, I, like I said, when I first saw it, it just kind of lodged itself into my mind and, and, it, and, and it has not left. And uh, I consider it to be one of the best movies ever made. Uh, if I had to give you top ten, it would be there on that list. So we've talked about Metropolis. Uh, we've talked about The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari. Uh, we've talked about M. We could have talked about uh, F.W. Murnau's Nosferatu, the first movie about Dracula, based upon Bram Stoker's novel that was also from 1920. And a variety of other really classic movies, but all from the same directors, whether it's uh, Fritz Lang or F.W. Murnau or Pabst. Uh, they all produced other films worthy of our attention. And But do you think that that there was something about this time and this place that allowed a film like Pandora's Box to be made? Whether there was, well, do you mean what did the, Culture, the culturally, were right? culturally, culturally, maybe the conditions were right for that kind of creativity, because I think there was this 
there was a lot of uh, um, kind of a decadence, right, going on at the same time. Oh, Berlin was the most decadent city in the history yeah. of Europe. Right, and uh, so a lot of uh, a lot of play with gender as well, obviously, uh, and you see that in some of these films. Um, no restrictions, but I always found them to be um, more creative than than um, libertine. I guess there's a lot of oh, absolutely. What was that? Absolutely, I yeah. agree with you. Yeah, yeah, I, I found them to be more full of arrows, I guess, than uh, than any sort of um, um, destructive immorality. As much as those things are, much of the films are filled with um, with those kinds of conditions as well. Um, but that's the, I think that's the tension in in the Weimar cinema. I, I think. Well, um, you have you have a country devastated. By World War One, but yet you have a city, Berlin, kind of reborn and feeling its oats, but a city that has thrown off the empire and thrown off the traditional Western culture, thrown off the Catholic Church to a certain extent, or the Lutheran Church, probably there in northern Germany. And it is, we have rampant, we have sex clubs, we have dance halls. We have all kind of prostitution, male and female, on the streets of Berlin. It's a time when people were witnessing desire everywhere. But I think here's a case when a director and a a uh, actress decided, let's explore this as deeply as we can go. Yes, and, and it was just bubbling, right, at the time, or the, everything was perfect set for it, and and maybe it was exactly because of that tension um, in the society and that, that instability um, that all of that occurred. Um, luckily, I don't, I don't remember reading anything about extreme censorship of any of the films. No. Except, except for uh, the um, Dr. Mabusa at the end there. Um, well, the Nazis wouldn't show it. The Nazis banned it, yes. Right. Um, the Nazis loved Metropolis, and that's why... Fritz Lang distanced himself from that, but yeah. Well, anyway. Amina, we've come to the end of our hour together. It just flies by too really quickly. Did. We could keep talking, I know, for another hour easily. <laughs> but I want to thank you for being on Church and Culture, and we look forward to reading your books about Edward G. Robinson and Ronald Reagan's Hollywood years. Thank you, Amina. Thank you so much, Jim. All of you are listening. I'll be back in a moment another great guest.